Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today on the program, we're going to visit with Representative Elizabeth Esty. She's a Democrat who represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. She will, of course, be heading back to Washington very soon, and she'll be in attendance as President Obama gives his State of the Union address tomorrow. There's lots to talk about, including gun control and the president's executive action. That's something we're going to be talking about first here on the program. But if you want to ask questions of Representative Elizabeth Esty, you can call us at 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Congresswoman, good to see you once again. Thanks for joining us on Where We Live. Great to be back. So I'll start by just um, relaying a little story. We uh, saw each other not too terribly long ago. It was in October. I was coming in to do a Saturday fundraiser, and I was surprised that you were waiting in our parking lot. You were coming in to do a a live shot uh, via satellite with one of the 24-hour news channels. It was just after the San Bernardino shootings. And you were going to be on and you were going to be talking about guns in America once again. And we talked for about five minutes as we were walking in the building and you were angry. And I you, sure was. You, you, you seemed as, as angry and upset as I'd ever seen you and as angry and upset about anything as I'd ever seen an elected representative. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Talk about how that has been fueling you and maybe some of your colleagues over the course of the last couple months or maybe the couple last couple years since Newtown? Well, I, I think you saw that emotion with the president this week at the White House, and it was very palpable in, that, in the White House on Tuesday that we have to do better as a country. We have to do better, John. There are 33,000 Americans who lost their lives to gun, gun violence last year, 33,000. If you Over two years, that's more than were killed in the entire Vietnam War. So to the people who say this law or that law, this proposal, the president's executive actions won't have saved this particular life, I look at them and say, are you telling me that nothing we do would make a difference? Because frankly, none of our laws is perfect. We have laws against murder. We have laws against rape. We still have murders. We still have rapes. We don't give up on our laws because they don't stop all bad behavior. So I'm really frustrated with this narrative that one particular proposal might not have stopped one horrible death. That's not the way we legislate. We're supposed to legislate over the totality of it, and it would be better. And the fact is this. Over 2 million sales have been stopped by the use of background checks. They work. So, so to the Republicans and others who say the NRA, it doesn't work, you ask the 2 million families who might have been killed by somebody, a, f- a domestic violence abuser, a felon who was denied the right to have a gun, under federal law, they're not supposed to have one. So, so I'm just I'm, – I'm really frustrated with this notion that only perfect laws should ever be considered. That's not our job. Well, and certainly no, no laws, especially in this realm, are going to be perfect. In, in large part because there's so much dispute over one key part of our Constitution and what it means. So, so all of that said, I think that one of the, the ways to react to President Obama's executive orders is to say that these are things 
that makes sense but could have been said some time ago and perhaps don't go anywhere near far enough. That is certainly what many people who are viewing this are saying. Do you, do you look at this and say, well, good, I'm glad that he's taking the step, but maybe this is something that, that needed to happen sooner, given the fact that um, the body that you're in, Congress, seems to want to do nothing to change the laws? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I think the president, like all of us, thought that the murder of 20 school children in a first-grade classroom would have been enough to get action. And, you know, the president's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. You know, if he takes executive action, he's overreaching. If he doesn't, he's not addressing the problem. The bottom line is this. Congress has a sworn duty to act, to enact legislation, to take steps to protect the American people. And Congress is falling down on its job. And, and I am, you know, very persuaded that the steps the president announced last week, which are going to ensure that people who are in the actually selling guns, whether they're doing it in a bricks-and-mortar store, at a gun show, or online, are subjecting all of their customers to background checks. That's really the biggest issue, and it shouldn't be an issue. Federal law says, you know, if you're in the business of selling guns, you have to get a federal license to be a dealer. And if you're a dealer, you have to process all those requests through the background check system. And right now, you've got somewhere between about 20 and 40% of sales are going online. So you talk about the gun show loophole. It's not the gun show loophole. It's the internet loophole. And here's a question for, for you, uh, John, and everybody listening. 20 years ago, when the background check bill went into force, did you do any shopping for your holidays online? Answer's probably none. And how much did you do this year? I'm not going to ask you to disclose, but I know I did some, and I'm sure Sure. you did some too. That's the reality of commerce. It's gone online. And the president is just to enforce the law that was written 20 years ago on background checks. He needs to make sure that we haven't allowed e-commerce to swallow up what was intended, frankly, by Congress to subject commercial sales to background checks. It's common sense. If everything changes tomorrow about how we buy guns right now, that won't change the fact that America is is awash in guns, both both legal and illegal. And many people, I think, on both sides of this debate say, you're not going to take all those guns away. You're not going to get rid of those guns. In your mind, what substantively needs to change about America? And maybe it's not a law that you can legislate, but maybe it's something about the way we think about things or the way we just do things that might change this notion that we uh, need to be and have been for so long so heavily armed as a nation? Well, it's a really important question that you ask. And, and it was part of the conversation yesterday in Newtown, actually. Uh, yesterday afternoon, um, Abby Disney came to Newtown to air her film, Armor of Light, and brought with her uh, Reverend Rob Shank, who's been an activist in the evangelical community for a very long time, a converted Jew, actually, who became an evangelical Christian, and has been one of the leaders of Operation Rescue, one of the leaders of the pro-life movement. And she documents his movement over the course of several years to conclude that we in America need to do something about protecting people from gun violence and takes it from the pro-life perspective. So it's kind of an interesting view. And, And part of that conversation in the room yesterday in Newtown, in the church yesterday in Newtown, was what we're going to do about a country in which right now a lot of pe- there's a lot of fear and people are equating uh, having a gun as being what keeps you safe rather than having a police force, rather than having 
a national government that protects you. And I think that's a much deeper issue. And I don't have the answer to that, but I do know we need to talk about it because you can't just keep upping the ante, say the bad guys have guns, so we need more guns. Well, now we have more guns, so the bad guys are going to get more guns. And at some point, that just doesn't really deal with this desire to have security, which we all have. We all have. But, but, it, but the notion that a gun will ensure that, I think, is misplaced. And that's, frankly, part of the appeal right now, now of the NRA. And you listen to these clips from Wayne LaPierre and a lot of the Republican candidates for president, and they are stoking that. The president's trying to take away your guns. I don't want to take away. I only want to take away guns or keep guns out of the hands of felons, dangerously mentally ill, would-be terrorists, and domestic violence abusers. That's what the law is, except for the terrorists. And frankly, that is just bizarre that if you can't get on an airplane because we think you're a terrorist, you can still legally buy a gun. Now, that's something we ought to just fix in Congress right now. I think both on that issue, though, and on the issue of what you call dangerously mentally ill, there are many people who spend a lot of their time looking at civil rights and say, um, I have concerns about who gets on that can't fly list. Who gets on that dangerously mentally ill list? And and that doesn't necessarily just have to do with guns. That has to do with how we as America classify specific people who we find in whatever way dangerous. Isn't that a bit of a slippery slope that I think uh, many Democrats probably have to grapple with as they enter into this part of the, the debate? Well, I think there's no question but that we need to have better access to mental health services. That's part of one of the president's proposals from last week was Mm -hmm. for better access to mental health services. And that's really important. And so he's calling for an extra, you know, $500 million in in funding. I know just from my office the kind of calls we get on a very regular basis from families looking to try to get access to particularly to child psychiatrists and psychologists to help their kids. Um, That remains an issue in this country. There's already stigma and you know, I'm going to repeat again because it's so important to know, the mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of gun violence rather than perpetrators, and, and that's well established. But, but it's clear on these mass shooting situations, we do have a challenge in this country that doesn't seem reflected elsewhere. But the bottom line is every day there are more than 30 Americans who are dying by gunshots. Some of those are suicides. Some of those are shootings right here in Hartford where we are right this moment, and we need to do something. And so to people who are concerned about different aspects of this law, again, my question is, what's your proposal? What are you going to do? And that's why I'm such – why I think it's so important, and I introduced an amendment uh, to the big spending bill in December to get rid of what's called the Dickey Amendment, and that is the now longstanding bar against federal research on the causes of gun violence. And isn't that, and I was going to ask you about that anyway, and we're going to get to some phone calls with Elizabeth Esty, uh, 5th District Representative, in just a moment at 860-275-7266. But I was going to ask about that. That seems like another one of these issues of transparency that, and I've heard from and talked to many people on both sides of the gun control versus gun rights debate, um, who see some real sense in things like background checks of a certain type, and certainly of the sharing and availability of data and research on on gun violence as a public health issue. Talk a bit more about what you would see changed around that and what the problems are right now in America around just getting the data that we need to make informed decisions. Well, I'll tell you, there's a pretty good analogy to cars. 
Uh, 30 years ago, 55,000 Americans lost their lives in car accidents every year, 55,000. That number is down to 30,000 last year. In fact, last year was the first year that more Americans died from gunshot wounds than died in car accidents. And see, so we had 33,000 from guns and 30,000 from cars. Now, virtually every American over the age of 16 drives a car, right? And for a long time, the auto companies resisted efforts to collect data on car safety, exactly the same thing that we're trying to get around guns. But once we were allowed to do research, guess what we found out? Like you could have airbags, you could have anti-lock brakes, you could have a lot of safety features on the modern American car. And in fact, a lot of the car companies now advertise based on how safe their cars are. Didn't... Didn't the market, though, push that in a certain way? The fact is is that, yeah, people wanted to drive a safer car, but there are requirements for liability insurance and you drive a car. I mean, you have to have insurance to drive a car. You would think that part of that change that you're talking about isn't through any sort of legislation or altruism on the part of the car industry. It had to do an awful lot with the fact that they were going to lose an awful lot of money on uh, insurance claims, on liability, if they continued to have people launched through windshields in accidents. And that's why that changed. I mean, it is to a certain extent, market-driven, isn't it? Well, but there was also the data to figure out what do you do. Mm -hmm. You know, you needed good data. And we in the United States believe in science. We believe in good information. So technology can be our friend here. And it has been our friend in cars. And it ought to be our friend in guns. We ought to be able to make it easier for someone who wants to have a gun to ensure that nobody else, no unauthorized person can use it. And there's technology that's being developed right now. There's thumbprints and other kinds of scans. You use a thumbprint to open your iPhone. You probably do. Mm -hmm. um, and if we can do that, we can figure out how to have guns be safer and, and only be usable by authorized people. What, what that seems the, like yeah. common sense. And, and again, which is, again, another part of the president's proposal was to increase spending on the federal research side and to engage the tech community and gun manufacturers to say, let's find ways to make guns safer. What, what about this idea of liability insurance? Well, I'd like to see it. I think it would help. I think it would help the market to respond. That's going to be a tough row to hoe in Congress, I'll tell you right now. I mean, there was legislation passed that I voted against last week in the House to you know, reduce liability for a whole bunch of things. So I don't think we're going to see that in this Congress. But yes, that's part of the way America works is if you impose liability on somebody who's in a position to make something safer, you know what? The market will have figure out how to do that. That's one of the reasons I'd support it. We got a few calls coming in at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Bill is in Southington. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi, thanks, John. Uh, yeah. Just a quick question. Um, you know, the, the tragic events of Sandy Hook. Uh, how would it, how exactly though would would background checks um, have stopped something like that? You know, do we say if somebody is, you know, those guns are purchased legally. If somebody has a mentally disabled or mentally ill person in their household, you know, how could that have prevented it? How where do we draw the line and say, you as somebody have all these factors that deny you the right to own a weapon? You know, where, where do we draw the line? Or if a convicted felon 25 years ago now wants to protect his family, he's on the right path. You know, where do we say you can no longer own a gun? You know, how, how do we how do we distinguish that is, but, is my concern? But Bill, thank you very much for the question. I think and Bill is picking up on the thing that I asked earlier is there really is a very fine line. I mean, look, uh, the last thing Bill said about a convicted felon who served his time or, or her time 25 years ago 
uh, now believes he wants to own a firearm to protect his family. We are in the midst right now of some great acclaim for uh, uh, Governor Malloy's Second Chance Society, a notion that people having spent their time in prison have an opportunity to, to become productive, full members of society once again. And that's one of the many questions, the one that Bill raises, is one they have to think of. How do we limit and say, here's who can have a gun, here's who cannot have a gun. There's someone who maybe has, um, in, in the case of, of Nancy Lanza, um, uh, an autistic son. Should she be able to have a gun? Who gets flagged for that? I think that that's part of what Bill's question is. Sure. And, and Bill, thanks for, the, thanks for your question. Um, as I think we said earlier, you know, like no law is going to solve everything. Um, but and I, I'd love to have a conversation. Actually, I'd love to have hearings to talk about this issue. And and I'm somebody who believes in in looking at prison reform too. And I think you know if somebody's served their time in 25 years and totally clear record, depending on what the felony is, it might be appropriate to look at allowing that person to purchase uh, to purchase a weapon. I'm totally open to to actually having some hearings and talk about that. My frustration, Bill, is the fact that in the three years that I've been in Congress, representing Newtown and, uh, you know, 50, uh, five, one out of five people in the state, we haven't had a single hearing on a bill in the House of Representatives, not one hearing, not one vote on anything. So if we could have some hearings, if we could get some data, I think we can look at exactly some of these questions. The answer just can't be no, 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 we're not going to do anything. And, and that's where we're stuck right now, and that's not a good place. We really need to genuinely engage in, you know, their privacy concerns. We want to make sure people get access to mental health uh, services and don't want to discourage them from doing so. So, again, there's no single law that's going to change all human behavior. But they're ones that can make it better, and that's what I'm looking to do. Can we make it better? Uh, let's go to another bill. Uh, this bill is calling from Madison, Connecticut. Hello, Bill. Hi. Um, thanks uh, for taking the call. I, uh, the problem the right has, your guest spoke to, being frustrated with the right um, in terms of blocking development of legislation or Obama's just fine. He's got a great idea of background checks, and why are people pushing back? The reason is that the right has watched, for instance, in Newtown, where a horrible, horrible thing happened, and a key part of legislation passed in Connecticut and New York was to confiscate existing weapons that were legally held. And so they're confiscated based on cosmetics, frankly, uh, whether you have a thumbhole stock or a pistol grip or a bayonet mount has absolutely no effect on the lethality. When in fact, we know from, for instance, in Virginia Tech, 34 people killed, right, with ordinary small pistols. One of them was a very small pistol, right? Um, what frustrates us on the right is that the real problems are not being addressed by the left. The real problems are gang violence. The real problems are illegal guns in circulation among gangs. Uh, there are societal problems that need to be addressed from a from a uh, from a um, social health aspect, right? Public health issues and criminal uh, issues, and making it helping to eliminate the gang problem. Well, I, I'm wondering, Bill. You know, the thing that we talked about earlier that there is a there is a federal ban on research having to do with gun violence that would, I think, and I know many people who study this stuff at Harvard and other places. Luckily, Harvard has a big enough endowment. They can afford to do some research without federal funding. But but they look directly at this and how illegal guns end up on the streets of places like Hartford and Boston and New York. 
uh, do you do you think that Congress should pass a law that allows for federal funding for research on guns as a public uh, safety issue? Um, yes, but this is a very careful, delicate issue, as you know, because if you know the history of that amendment, the Dickey, uh, you'll understand why it was why it happened. Right? It was taxpayer money being spent to. Uh, so yes, I think something has to be done to improve that understanding. But I think fundamentally, we already know the problems aren't the guns per se. It's the it's the uh, problem of opportunity. It's a problem of of uh, school to prison pipeline. It's a problem of racism. These larger yeah. societal problems create issues that lead to gang violence. Well, hey, Bill, and I'm sorry to cut you off just because I'm up against a break. I really appreciate your question. I'd love you, for you to respond, Elizabeth Esty. Well, Bill, thanks. Thanks for your really thoughtful remarks. And I, I think you've you've certainly put your finger on some of the real challenges we have, um, gang violence and just violence using illegal guns is a serious issue. And that's part of the reason why, in fact, Jay Dickey, who sponsored this amendment 20 years ago, why he is now calling for getting rid of it because he's looking at the carnage at the 33,000 American lives lost and saying, gee, we ought to be able to figure out what's going on here. And so I, I hope you'll lend support to, to doing some research, figuring out what we can do, figuring out where are the hotspots, what is really happening, not just the anecdotal. But what is actually happening and how can we address that? Is it a matter of better policing? Is it a matter of actually passing legislation, which I think we need, to make it a federal felony to traffic in illegal weapons, to take guns across state lines? You know, it's not illegal to do that right now. And that would allow teeth uh, for local law enforcement to work with the FBI to actually deal with these illegal drug um, gun and drug running, which is sometimes what we see. So, so I think we need to know more about how to address the really root causes of violence. And I think this would help us do that. So I, I appreciate your thoughtfulness and would love to follow up with you uh, if you want to call my office off the air. Yeah, Bill, thank you very much for your question. Just before we take our break, just to, to follow up on that, though, uh, I think Bill also mentioned something that's very important that I don't think we hear enough of in this in this conversation is he and, and many others who, who maybe disagree with you on some of the specific gun legislation uh, he's saying, look, there are bigger societal issues. We've already talked about uh, mental health issues. We're going to talk. He talked about poverty. He talked about problems uh, in our urban areas. You sit down with Congress people across the aisle all the time. Uh, do you sense that many of your colleagues are willing to engage, if not in a conversation about how we change gun policy, a conversation about how we uh, holistically make the world better for people who are less fortunate and who have less uh, in the places where many of the worst gun problems exist today? Not as many of those conversations as, as I'd like. But, uh, but I'll tell you, I do you know, hope after the break we can talk about what I have been working on across the aisle and some of those conversations that started in the back of a committee room or on the floor of the House that are leading to you know, proposals and, in some cases, bills signed into law to help address economic opportunity, uh, opportunity for women and kids of color, uh, help for our veterans and a whole lot of other things where I am working on developing those relationships across the aisle to help deal with real-world problems and get at some of these issues. Well, we will talk about some of those things with Representative Elizabeth Esty, who joins us in studio today. You can call us at 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today in the program, we're talking with Representative Elizabeth Esty. She's a Democrat who represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. We'll get to some of your phone calls in just one moment at 860-275-7266 and your tweets at Where We Live. I just want to remind you that on January 19th, I will be in New Haven with Colin McEnroe for a special Wheelhouse Uncensored 2.0. We did this last year, and we had a lot of fun. We're going to be in New Haven at the Tavern right downtown. If you'd like more information, go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. We would love to see you there for a freewheeling Wheelhouse Uncensored. We're talking with Elizabeth Esty about a lot of the things she's working on in Congress. Of course, she's heading back to Washington. She's going to be there as the president gives his State of the Union address tomorrow, which, of course, will be broadcast here on WNPR. One of the issues that uh, you've been tackling and that's so important to our state and many others around here is the terrible problem of opioid overdose, uh, heroin overdose. Uh, Sean tweets us, what's the progress of your opiate overdose uh, prevention legislation? Maybe you can talk about that legislation and then give us an update. Sure. Well, it's great. Uh, Well-timed. Um, I got word last night that my bill is going to be on the floor of the House today. So that means we'll either vote today or tomorrow. And this is a bipartisan piece of legislation, um, something that I really started hearing about, I would say, two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, when I was up in the northwest corner. I think I was in Salisbury or I think it was in Salisbury. A mom came to me and said, you got to do something. We're having real issues. And then I started hearing from everyone. I heard from ER docs at Charlotte Hungerford Hospital. I started hearing from Torrington and from Waterbury and from New Britain about from doctors, from police chiefs, from families saying they were losing their kids. And so actually I'm now I'm part of a couple of different bi- bipartisan task forces. We're, this afternoon um, I'll be flying down to D.C. and we're having a hearing on opioid addiction, doing a screening of a movie tonight with the Surgeon General to talk about what we can do. I'm on a New England task force where we're looking at the particular challenges we're having, cross-border issues in New England. And, you know, there's more we can do. So I'm, I'm glad to, to say um, – actually, no, it's not my, my opioid one. I have – Another one, which is actually on e-cigarettes, which we also learned about from oh, here. Oh, yes. My e-cigarette bill is up today. Um, and on the opium one and opioids, we're looking at a couple different pieces. Um, one of those is looking at changing prescribing practices. You know, the typical prescription for painkillers is 30, you know, 30 pills. And that's whether you had hip replacement as my mother did, or whether you had your wisdom teeth out, as all three of my kids did. And, and I'm looking to see if what we can do to help reduce that number, at least when it's for less serious ones. Yeah. I've been, you know, I've held, you know, a bunch of roundtables. I've met with ER docs, uh, substance abuse folks, uh, part of the task force in this region. So we've beefed up some resources. Good news, we've gotten some grant money in Connecticut to help on our statewide task force. It's part of the reason I've invited Police Chief uh, James Wardwell, Jim Wardwell of New Britain, to be my guest at the State of the Union. He's been working on this issue, as have many of our police chiefs in big and small towns across the state. So, so again, we're working on a bunch of different pieces of legislation to figure out what is really going to get to the problem, because it usually doesn't start with heroin. You know, it starts with prescription drugs. And so, so legislatively, what do you do about that? I mean, we've been hearing about this for years that many physicians are too willing to prescribe very powerful drugs to people who maybe need them and maybe don't need them, but prescribe them certainly for such a long period of time that people uh, become addicted um, and then find a cheaper high elsewhere um, with illegal heroin. Can you legislate physicians um, 
to prescribe differently if that is indeed one of the biggest problems? It's a good question. And, and again, you know, you don't want to be, if you're a hammer, you think everything's a nail. You know, I, I'm not sure that necessarily how much of this is going to be legislation and how much of this is going to be changed practices. But sometimes having legislative hearings can be a way of getting attention to the topic. And I'll tell you that the physicians, one of the things they need to do is think about their responsibility and provide for either alternative page pain management or recognize if someone's been on prescription drugs, powerful ones, for a couple of weeks, they're going to need to be weaned off. You can't just cut them off. So, so one of the issues that's been raised with me by the substance abuse community is saying there's been so much more awareness now. We've got to stop people from getting addicted that sometimes there's a direct cutoff and then it leaves people with cravings, they are addicted and they're going to need help. So, so that's part of the piece now. We've got to, we've raised awareness about prescription drug abuse, but the response is maybe pushing people to heroin, which is absolutely not what we want to do. So we've got to, again, look at alternative pain management, prescribing practices. And one of the pieces I'd like to try to engage athletic directors, coaches, and parents to think about, are we pushing our kids too hard in sports? I'm hearing more and more stories about teenagers, and a lot of them are kids who got injured playing sports, got put on powerful, powerful painkillers, got addicted really quickly because it appears, you know, the teenage brain can get affected much, much more quickly. And before you know it, these kids are addicted, and they don't really know what to do. They get cut off, and, and they're then buying a $10 bag of heroin on the streets of one of our cities. How, how culpable in all this is the very powerful pharmaceutical industry, which, of course, as you know, is, is a huge contributor to uh, members of Congress? I mean, the, the lobby for the pharmaceutical industry holds sway, like many of the other very, very large uh, uh, industry groups. And there is a sense that if we wanted, much like guns, if we wanted to develop safer, less addictive forms of painkillers, we would do that, but there is a an incentive for the companies that make this stuff to make the stuff the way they make it. Is that fair to say? I, I don't think so. Not on this, you know. Really? I, I, I think they're they're concerned about it. It's not nobody wants to have patients dying. And I think they found that these worked really well to dull pain. But now it's had a collateral consequence of being highly addictive. But but I mean so, the, the way that they're the way that they're prescribed by doctors Many would say, and many reports have said, comes in large part by the the push that comes from the pharmaceutical industry to prescribe, right? They make these drugs in order to have them prescribed to people. I'll tell you more what I've heard when I've gotten in conversations with with docs about this is that they are now being evaluated on patient satisfaction. And a patient in pain is not a happy patient. And so, again, this is the challenge of unintended consequences. We want to make sure, and traditionally there's been concerns that surgeons were insensitive to pain. Mm -hmm. So then make sure they're prescribing enough pain medication. Well, then it's easier. Okay, fine. If I'm going to be evaluated on that, I'm just going to give you a script for 30, a prescription for 30 pills. So so again, unintended consequences. We want to make sure we don't have people suffering needlessly, but you're looking at a copay system. You're looking at people needing to come back if you're in pain or have had surgery, it may be difficult to come back to the doctor mm-hmm. for a refill. I've had people say, well, do you want to charge multiple co-pays? So it's, it's more challenging to get the details right. 
but it doesn't mean we need don't need to try. We really do. It is a it is an epidemic, certainly in the Northeast, in New England, and we've got to figure out ways to do better. And I think that's going to take getting everyone to the table. And that's a lot of what I do. Try to bring really bring everyone to the table. Maybe the solution's legislative. Maybe it's not. But I want to be part of that process of being a problem solver for this kind of problem, which is, you know, devastating families. Again, and it's in small towns. It's in big cities. It's in suburbs. It knows no distinction. And we've got to do something on this. Our last thing on this, you mentioned uh, some of the cross-border challenges that happened in our state and others. Of course, this made the news not too terribly long ago when the um, – I, I mean, I, I – I, I suppose I won't Pretty put, stunning ad- comments, won't put okay. adjectives on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Governor LePage in, in uh, Maine said some things about uh, Connecticut and New York and just as, as some things in general that made news uh, for not all the right reasons. But again, it was part of a, a larger conversation about how, how drugs, illegal drugs that stem from these opioid uh, addictions do flow uh, between our states. What are some of the big challenges you see and what are you talking to colleagues about? Well, this is in part, you know, we're, we're putting together regional task forces. Um, we've been asking for a meeting with the head of Health and Human Services with Sylvia Burwell to see, you know, what can we do on prescribing practices? What are things we can do that would be more effective? And, and again, it's a complicated issue, and it's going to take law enforcement, folks in the mental health community, prescribing physicians, surgeons, and ER docs, um, first responders, everybody, to the t- and, and parents and kids to the table, because frankly, one of the challenges is the treatment is not very successful, as I know, as I think you know. It, it can take a long time to get someone successfully through treatment. So it is a tough problem. And if we can figure out how to make our prescription painkillers less susceptible to abuse, that would be a really good thing. Do you think that Governor LePage is, is part of the problem in the sense that high-ranking officials in states have such a, a narrow or distorted or just wrong-headed view of what the problem is? I think it's not helpful when elected officials don't take the time to know the details and to genuinely try to be a problem solver, not point at, like, it's that guy's problem, that guy behind the tree, he's the one who's responsible for the problems in my state. That's just not the way it works. You know, our, our borders are, are, we drive across them every day here. And if we want to solve a problem, it can't be by blaming somebody else, but, but by actually sitting down together and working together. And whether it's on guns, whether it's on, on heroin, whether it's on e-cigarettes, which I'm working on, well, and talk, talk about kids. that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What is this legislation? What would it do? Yeah, so this e-cigarette, again, this was something that, again, came up from somebody a couple of years ago who raised this question with me and said, you know, Elizabeth, I'm a lifelong smoker and I'm trying to quit by using e-cigarettes, but they're using it to addict our kids. Well, it turns out that's really true. E-cigarettes have become sort of the new entry of big tobacco into addicting our kids. And, and there are two different problems that I'm working on. One has to do with the poison that is liquid nicotine. Liquid nicotine is toxic. It can kill you if you drink it. And it can actually harm you even if it spills on your skin because it's so concentrated. Well, bizarrely, it is not childproof packaged right now. If you think about eye drops, contact lens solution, almost everything's got a little wrapper on it. That is not true for the liquid nicotine refills. And so the bill I have the floor on the floor of the House today, it's a bipartisan bill with uh, my friend and colleague Susan Brooks from Indiana, already has passed the Senate, and that's, this is designed to insist that immediately we get childproof packaging on this because we've already had at least one child die, lots of other poisonings of little kids because the liquid nicotine is designed to appeal to kids, and it smells like and is flavored so that it would seem like bubble gum, cotton candy, 
gummy bears, peppermint, chocolate. These are all flavors that are designed to appeal to kids. Um, so that bill looks like it's going to go, I think, this week. And then we'll be headed to the president for signature. Um, we, and I've got another piece of legislation to look at advertising to kids. And in fact, just last week, information came out about how dangerous these e-cigarettes are to kids, and it's leading to something called popcorn lung, actually, which can really, I know it sounds horrible, but when they heat this stuff up, you may have remembered a number of years ago there were issues in plants where they did microwave popcorn, mm-hmm. and it was affecting the workers. The same chemical um, is used, actually, in the wrapping and is released in the packaging for liquid uh, for e-cigarettes. And so this has been part of our concern as we've been worried about what's going to be the impact of heating these chemicals and then breathing in the smoke. So, again, the increase in the number of kids smoking e-cigarettes has gone through the roof in the last two years. We need to do something about it. And that's why I've got you know one bill that I hope will pass today and go uh, on to the president for signature. And this other one, which we're hopeful that we're going to get some movement on. Uh, and Nate from Terryville is calling about uh, the issue we were just talking about. And Nate, do you have a quick thought? Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. I, I kind of resented the comments about teachers and coaches pushing kids too hard in sports. I've been injured severely broken legs and, and wrists and ribs in sports in high school. And, you know, I was prescribed painkillers that I had to choose not to take. They made me ill. They were so powerful. And, you know, the, pro- the problem is definitely not kids competing and pushing themselves to the limit and learning qualities that are going to help them be successful in life. It's, it's allowing them to believe that taking, you know, highly powerful, highly dangerous and life-threatening drugs is the way to deal with injury and pain. And, you know, that's the problem, our system. And the pharmaceutical company that you brought up, it's their fault. It's the medical system. It's not kids competing and putting it all out there on the field and learning how to be successful in life and learning how to handle difficulties and, and, and adversities. It's Giving our kids dangerous drugs. Hey, hey, Nate, Nate, can I just ask you, I think you raise a great point. Can I just ask you a question, though? Is it fair to say, though, that you you were an athlete who resisted the the urge to take powerful painkillers because of their addictive properties, that not all young people might be in the position to to do what you did? Positively, which is why I'm not blaming the kids either. How Hmm. would they know how dangerous they are when they're being handed to them? But, you know, when they're being handed to them by the doctors and their parents are telling them it's okay and big big pharmacy is saying that these are safe and effective ways to handle pain, which they're not. Sure, sure. and Nate, and, Nate thank uh, uh, they, 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 Yeah. Well, th- hey, Nate, thank you very much. I just want to get a quick uh, response from Elizabeth Estee, and thank you for your call. No, Nate, you're absolutely right, so I, I must not have been clear enough. I think you're right. I don't think it's the kids. I, I want to bring in parents and coaches about pushing their kids too hard. You were smart enough. To know if you're hurt and you're injured, you got to be careful, and you shouldn't get back on the field. So, so one of the things I see is is pressure to get kids back on the field that you can get, and frankly, it ties into things like college scholarships and college affordability. Um, pressure to be so extraordinary in sports that you're going to get a college scholarship, and and that shouldn't be the way our kids are thinking. Everybody's going to be able to pay for what's increasingly unaffordable college. But you are right, and you are smart. You are smart to resist that. Uh, push to take these very powerful drugs. They make me sick, too, so I'm right with you on that. But but I think coaches and parents bear some real responsibility to say, be careful. These are your kids. They're precious. And if they're that in that much pain, they probably shouldn't be playing. 
you know, and, and keep track how many, write down how many pills are they taking, try to wean them off as fast as they can. And I, I'm not blaming the kids at all. I think they're great lessons to be learned from sports. I certainly did. My kids have too. But I'm talking about the responsibility of parents, responsibility of the doctors, responsibility of the parents, responsibility of coaches who, are, who may be pushing kids too hard and encouraging them to take meds they shouldn't be taking or take them for too long. I think you're absolutely right, and I'd love to get you talking to people about, uh, about that. Nate, thank you again for your phone call. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. We're going to take a break. When we come back with Representative Elizabeth Estee, we've got a lot more to get to in just the last few minutes. We'll, we'll rapid fire through some other things that she's working on and, and ask how functional is this new Congress, this new House of Representatives with uh, Paul Ryan. That's coming up next to where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to bring you stories that connect Connecticut to West Africa. Ebongundama, who's a reporter for WSHU, checks in from Nigeria's capital city where he's been working on a new multimedia project called Go Tell Africa. We're also going to hear from a local Nigerian-American author who shows a lesser side, uh, lesser known side of her birth country. And also we'll talk to Afropop Worldwide's Banning Air. He'll share some of the vibrant musical sounds of modern-day Lagos. That's coming up uh, tomorrow on Where We Live. You can join me this afternoon uh, at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. I'll be sitting in with Colin as we pay tribute to and we uh, collect stories about one of the uh, most amazing musicians of our time and certainly one of the great artists, David Bowie. I'm here with Elizabeth Esty, who represents the 5th Congressional District. Do you have a David Bowie story? I do. I do. David Bowie has a, well, there are two things. One, who cannot love David Bowie if you're on the Science Committee because the most telling rendition of Ground Control to Major Tom yeah. was played on the International Space Station. Yeah. And uh, I serve on the Science Committee, and we've had some some connections up to uh, up to the space station, and uh, you know that is a favorite, as you can imagine, of our astronauts. Can but also, imagine? he's got a connection to uh, Professor Edward Tufty, Ed Tufty, um, who actually lives in my district, um, and he is a great. Uh, great professor who displays data, and he and David Bowie had a very well-covered and very controversial series of editorials in Wired magazine back probably 10, 15 years ago about the virtues or the demerits, as it were, of <laughs> PowerPoint, uh, yeah. with David Bowie taking the pro position that PowerPoint is creative and a great thing, and Edward Tufte questioning whether that was putting too much emphasis on sort of as pretty aesthetics and not enough on content. It's, so it's, maybe something to follow up with on Connecticut's own connection. It is It is. It is fascinating. We'll be talking about a lot of this uh, this afternoon at 1 o'clock with Colin McEnroe. Um, a lot to get to here. Uh, you're part of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Um, how much have you talked with Governor Malloy about his infrastructure plans, and what do you think the federal government's going to be able to do to assist Connecticut and this region in rebuilding its just shoddy infrastructure that clearly needs to be rebuilt? Well, in a lot of conversation with the governor and with uh, the with the commissioner of transportation, Jim Redeker, and I have to say, I was so pleased that we were able to pass a long term, a five year highway bill uh, earlier this earlier this winter, and it meant mo it means more money for Connecticut. I worked on that bill for a couple of years. We were able to get some really big wins for our state, most notably for our dairy farmers. You know, our dairy farmers for fifteen years have been trying to get permission to have. Um, more efficient transport of, of milk across state lines and around the state of Connecticut. And that's something that I was able to get that amendment uh, with help from some colleagues into, uh, into the highway bill. It's more money for the state. 
and it's a five-year bill, which means much better planning. You know, and if you think for a company or for a state, if you can have a planning horizon that's five years long, infrastructure projects take a long time to to bring to completion. And so we really need to know it's going to save us money to do that, allow us to plan better. So I was really pleased we were able to get sp- provisions in that. They're really going to help the state. A- again, but we need more money. I mean, make no mistake, the estimates are that we're over $3 trillion short of where we ought to be to replace and rebuild the infrastructure in this country. And it's one of the reasons why I'm looking at Rebuild America bonds. And I was thinking about the business story about David Bowie having issued bonds to help raise money based on his older songs. We've got to find some way to put more on the order of one to two trillion dollars into the system. So I'm I'm looking to see if we can't do it through bonding, allow Americans just as they did with war bonds and victory bonds to help put their money into rebuilding the bridges and roads that we travel on every day and, and frankly, true high-speed rail, which I know you and I are both fans of and would be transformative for our state. So that's one of the proposals that's on the table. And there's there's obviously a lot more to talk about. We just have a few minutes left, though, and I want to ask you about the new House of Representatives with uh, Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, you've talked already a few times about working across the aisle. We have, I think, a, a somewhat cartoonish notion in uh, in the states away from Washington, D.C., about how just dysfunctional Washington, D.C. is. In some ways, I'm sure that that cartoon is just about right, and in some ways, I'm sure it's not right at all. Can you talk about working with Republicans right now and also working with this new speaker? Sure. Well, to give you an example on working with Republicans right now, the highway bill, that was a product of really bipartisan work, um, and I really want to applaud the chairman, Bill Schuster from Pennsylvania, who's been up in Connecticut a bunch of times to help us out on that. Chairman of the Science Committee, Lamar Smith, is a pretty hardcore Republican from Texas. He and I disagree extremely strongly on climate change, and yet we worked together to pass and get signed into law the STEM Education Act earlier this year, which provides more resources um, and more help for STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math, and computer science. And in fact, he came to my office and presented me with a framed copy, signed copy of the bill, dang on my wall. So here's somebody who I disagree with very much on climate change. I think he's totally wrong because he mm-hmm. doesn't really believe it's a problem. And he's working against a lot of our clean, clean air rules. But yet we can work together on this other important area of STEM education. And that's what we've got to get back to in Congress. I think it's my job to find ways to get things fixed. And I'll tell you, my dedication to getting to know this new speaker is so intense that I now get up at 5 a.m., on Thursday mornings to join Speaker Ryan in a killer spin class and, you know, work out <laughs> together so that I will get to know him better. And and I intend to use that to be able to have conversation with him because some of it is just recognizing, you know, we're all Americans. We're all elected by our districts to try to improve things for the American he people. He seems like he grinded people into the ground in a spin class. Seems like kind yeah, of a he's, hardcore Yeah, he's dude. really hardcore. He's in really <laughs> great shape. It is pushing me hard. I'm really sore after class. But... <laughs> You know, that's part of just getting to know someone. As So I now know all about his hunting dogs, which I learned about last week. Um, and he sent me a Christmas card, and I sent him one too. So, so this is part of what has to happen is we may not agree on everything, and we may disagree on a whole lot. But, but, but there yeah. are areas we can agree. And, for example, there was a really good negotiation on the final budget bill. Yeah. We were able to keep out any, you know, restrictions on Planned Parenthood. We were able to keep out some really bad stuff there had been talk about putting into that bill. 
Uh, we were able to get um, really important provisions on renewable tax credits, money for land conservation, really important things that the Republicans said absolutely they didn't want to have in. Well, you know what? The negotiations got those into the bills. So at the end of the day, we've got to do better for the American people. But that's so interesting. And we just have a, about a minute and a half left. But I, look, in the rest of the world, outside of Congress, we are increasingly unfriending people from Facebook because they hold a view different than ours or they post something that we find distasteful. Um, and you are talking about having to get to know people who you disagree with very uh, vehemently on very uh, important issues, but having to sit down and work with them. Can you just talk about, about that change in your life from being someone on the outside who is maybe saying, oh, I can't believe these Republicans don't believe in climate change, to being someone who has to sit down with those Republicans over dinner? Well, I'm part of a couple of bipartisan dinner groups for that same reason, is, you know, all these folks were elected by their districts, and all of us are patriotic Americans who are in Congress, as far as I can tell. It's our job to figure out how to do better, you know. It's, it, I'm never going to persuade them on everything I would want to, nor are they going to persuade me. But if we get to know each other better, trust each other a little more, and try to find out what we can do, rather than fighting about what we can't do together, we'll find we can do more together. You know, that's, that's what I found. Uh, somebody, some wise person told me, you know, the first deal is the hardest one when you don't know other folks. And once you've done it once and it's been good for everyone, it's going to be easier to do other things. So, you know, part of that's, that's part of the job. And, and I'll get a chance to do a little bit more of that. And coming up very soon, I'll actually have a chance to go to Afghanistan on a bipartisan uh, congressional trip. And there's really important things I need to see about what's going on there. But it's also going to be a chance to get to know um, and travel with a couple of Republican members who I don't know right now mm. because we've got important work to do. Elizabeth Esty represents the 5th Congressional District, uh, and she's been uh, good enough to spend an hour with us here answering some of your questions. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Thanks. Our, pro our program produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon is WNPR's digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Solarski. I'm John Dankowski, and this is Where We Live.